0: We're starting in Ephesians, Ephesians 5:22 through 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of your wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, First Peter 3, 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Dear Lord, we thank you for uh, your scripture. We thank you that all words are from you, Lord. We uh, pray that you would prepare us to uh, understand this. We pray that you prepare Tom and guide Tom as he uh, teaches us on this uh, these passages, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Good morning. You can tell that I already did a change-up for this morning. I just pray this is useful to God. This stuff is so very, very important. It's so critical for our families, for the body of Christ, and for how we represent Christ in the world. One of my very favorite books and movies for a very long time has been the Hiding Place by Corrie Ten Boom. She wrote the book. Billy Graham Crusade actually produced the movie. One of the best produced Christian movies you'll ever watch if you haven't seen it. The setting at the beginning of the book is Holland during the Nazi occupation. And the Nazis were systematically marking out and rounding up all of the Jews in all of the occupied territories and sending them by train to these horrific places that we call concentration camps. More than six million Jews were exterminated in those camps. They would be taken to to these horrific places and they would live in, in squalid conditions until they were taken into gas chambers where they were executed en masse. There was a Dutch family... In a place called Harlem, Holland, there was, they were devout Christians. The head of the family was a watchmaker named Casper. He had two daughters, three daughters actually, but the two that lived with them were Corey and Betsy. And because of their, their great faith in Jesus Christ, this dear family became part of the Dutch resistance and they worked very, very hard to help Jews get get to safety, and if possible, get out of Nazi-occupied territories. With the help of some other Dutch resistance people, they built a very, very effective hiding place in a walled chamber in their house, covered with brick, accessed through the floor. That chamber would only hold a handful of people, but their, their intention was that over time they would They would take a small group and they would be able to protect them if the house was raided by the Nazis. They would be able to protect them in that room. They established procedures for getting people in there quickly. Well, one day, Corey, who was a very compassionate lady, trusted the wrong person. Uh, A young man came to her and she only knew him a little. And he pleaded with her to give refuge to a Jewish friend of his. And so she said yes. And just minutes later, After that conversation, after the man had left, the house was raided by a large number of Nazi soldiers, German soldiers. She managed, she and her sister managed to get six people into the hiding place, four Jews and two Dutch resistance fighters. Casper, Corey, Betsy, their brother Willem, and 30 other people who came to the house that day or called by phone were all taken and arrested and put into the camps. The six people in the hiding place were never detected by the Nazis. And two days later, they were escorted to other safe houses by Dutch resistance. The German soldier whose task it was to locate the room that they had heard about in that house tore walls down worked for a long period of time with other soldiers, and he concluded, this is what he said to his commanding officer. he said, if they have a hiding in, hiding place in this house, the devil himself built it. He had his sides a little mixed up. Corey and her family laid their lives down to make a handoff. They laid their lives down to, to take these Jewish people whose lives were were on the line, and to hand them off to others who would take them to safety. But they knew, these Casper and Corey and Betsy, they knew without a question that the real handoff was not to men because the one who controlled all of the outcome was God. And so they considered that what they were doing was was handing these people off to God. The book is great, and there's a there's a reunion between Betsy and this one Jewish. Uh, he's a he was a, a cantor in the synagogue in Amsterdam after the war. They met up again. Beautiful stuff. Well, the reason I I lay all that out as sort of an illustration is, is to say this. You may think that God would never require you to do something like that, or you might actually hope that God would never require you to do something like that. But beloved, God requires every one of us to do those sorts of things. He requires that every one of us lay down our lives daily in order to make a handoff in order to hand others to Him. And that includes unbelievers. It also includes one another in the body of Christ. We are commissioned to put each other into the hands of our Savior on a daily basis. And, and the way that happens is that we lay our lives down in order to accomplish it. And that means our lives in their totality. Our time, our money, our, our financial well-being, our, our uh, retirement funds... Our safety, our leisure, our emotional and physical well-being, we lay it all on the altar of God for Him to use as He chooses. And we do not know how He will choose to use it. In our passage this morning, Paul begins to take this, this assignment to lay our lives down to make this handoff to God, to Christ... He he applies it to one particular relationship, and that's the relationship of wives to husbands. We're going to look at the wives part of that this morning, and then we'll look at the husbands part of it next time. In verses 22 through 24, he says, "...Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body." The husband's not the Savior of the body. The wife is not the Savior of the body. Christ is the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Every wife's assignment from God is to be subject to your husband as to the Lord. That means that you submit yourself and your will to the headship of your husband as if you are submitting to Christ. Not as if, but because you are submitting to Christ. That unilateral submission we talked about last week, that where headship is involved, the submission is one-directional. The woman doesn't get to take the place of the man and lead in the marriage. And the man doesn't get to relinquish his role as head to his wife. It's one-directional. But there is a bi-directional component to this submission in every single relationship. And so Paul addresses the wives then the husbands, the children, then the parents, the slaves, then the masters. And in every case, what he's really requiring is fundamentally the same thing. It goes back to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a soothing aroma. Christ laid down his life for us for God. And he commands us to do the same thing. So the the unilateral and the bilateral always coexist and Christ is our example. For both of those paradigms. I'm gonna spend some time in another passage this morning and we're gonna go back and forth some between Ephesians 5, 22 to 24 and 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 3. Now some of you may say, well that, you shouldn't spend much time over there because we're in Ephesians. But like Bob, I'm, I'm very big on connecting dots and the dots here are so strongly connected that y- you can't Split them apart because you can take. If you, by the way, the word in verse twenty-two, the word "be subject" is not in the verse. It's borrowed from the verse before, where Paul said, "And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ," and that fits. And then it says, "Wives to husband, wives to your husbands." That fits because the unilateral and the bilateral always coexist, right? Now, if you take the phrase. If you borrow the verb from 21 you take the phrase wives be subject to your own husbands, you find the absolute identical phrase in the Greek in 1 Peter 3 verse 1. Identical. In the same way you wives be subject to or submissive to your own husbands. That's the same wording. It's the same command in both of these passages. But there's something... Fascinating that's going on in 1 Peter 3. Because in that passage, Peter brings three threads together, three parallel threads, and the center thread is Christ. The first thread, and, and turn there, please, if you've got your Bibles, and if you don't, start bringing them. This is a Bible church. 1 Peter 3, in verses 18 to 20, he says, and this is after he tells all of us to be submissive to, to the government authorities. Verse 18, he says, "...Servants, slaves, be submissive to your masters with all fear, only, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God a man bears under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience?" But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Okay, that's the first thread. The third thread is in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the same way, you wives, be subject to your own husbands so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word. Remember that. They may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. In between those two threads is the center thread, and that thread is Christ in chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. Please read this with me carefully. Look at it carefully. For you, all of you, y'all, have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return, but while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. All of that is pulled out of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage written 700 years before Christ came. And the two verses after that are also pulled from Isaiah 53. They're paraphrased, but that's, you'll find every one of these thoughts in Isaiah 53. Verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Isaiah 53, 5 says, by his scourging we are healed. Verse 25, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Isaiah 53, 6 says, says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the sin of us all to fall upon Him. And then it says, then we come back to that third thread, and the very next words, in the same way, you wives, be subject to your own husbands. In the same way as what? In the same way as Christ. See, here's... This, this didn't really register with me until the last two weeks. And I've looked at these passages countless times. In Ephesians 5, the wife is in the place of the church. In this parallel that Paul draws between Christ and his church and the husband and the wife, the wife is in the place of the church and the husband is in the place of Christ. But guys, in Ephesians 3, the wife is in the place of Christ. In her submission to a husband who's not obedient to Christ. The wife is in the place of Christ. Jesus submitted himself, subjected himself to authorities that hated God. And he did so all the way to the, to the point of death on a cross. The King of glory submitted and subjected himself to the authority of men who had no right to even share the same planet as Him. And that includes all of us. And and, and to me, this is so powerful because it goes back, it goes to that whole, that whole bilateral aspect of, of submission. Where headship is involved, it's one directional. But beloved, we are all called to be as Christ in laying down our lives for one another even when the other person not only gives nothing back, but makes our lives miserable and here 's the cool part: they really can 't make our lives miserable if we understand what's going on here they can't the language is uncompromising there's a handoff that happens when the wife does this and and first Peter three is is pretty explicit about this. It, it uh, it tells us uh, that if you put the two passages together, when the wife obeys both of these both of these commands to, that both have to do with submitting to her husband, but two different contexts: one in the headship submission relationship, the other representing Christ in His submission. When she does this, she she hands off two things to, to Christ: her marriage and her husband. She she lays her marriage on God's altar that it might be a beautiful representation for the whole world of the relationship between Christ and His church. And, and the world's not going to see that if she doesn't submit to the headship of her husband. The, the world will not see the submission of the church to Christ that God intends if the wife does not submit to the headship of her husband. The second thing that she lays up on that altar that she hands off to Christ is her husband. And 1 Peter 3 says this. This is so beautiful. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the Word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. And the word in the Greek it's actually through. It's through the behavior of their wives. That means she's an instrument She's not a source. She is an instrument of God's work in her husband. She's not the source. And it's not a promise. God's not saying, if you submit to your husband, he will become godly. It's saying, if you submit to your husband, he may be one without a word through your behavior. Your godly and submitted and chaste and respectful behavior and that's a handoff. And it gets really messed up if the wife if the wife assumes that she's the one who's going to make her husband godly. We'll get back to that in a second. This uh this principle pervades every relationship that we have in the body of Christ and it really pervades every relationship we have with others in the world. But but the focus in both these passages is in the body. Now, who does the winning? Well, first I want to say this. When Peter says what he says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, what he's assuming that he's dealing with wives who have sinners as husbands. Now, I know that doesn't apply here, And the the phrase disobedient to the Word in chapter 2 is talking about unbelief. It's talking about Jews who rejected Christ. But the phrase itself doesn't necessarily imply the person's not a Christian. And later in chapter 3, when he talks to husbands, it sounds like he's talking about marriages in which both parties are believers. But here, you've got a disobedient husband. A husband who's disobedient to the Word of God. And you've got the wife submitting anyway. And God says that He may be won without a word. Where in the passage before this did we see somebody win something without a word? Jesus. While being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. That's what the wife is to do in her marriage. And Peter says it outright in verse 6. Chapter 3, Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now how can you submit yourself to a husband who is not obedient to God and do that without fear? The same way Jesus did. By entrusting yourself to Him who judges justly. Now the next step from that that we might tend to take is to say okay if I do that then God's going to protect me from great harm at the hands of my husband from 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 him really mistreating me. Well what happened to Jesus when he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly? The next two verses say that God put the guilt of our sin on him and he went to the cross and paid for it. So is God guaranteeing you, wives, that if you submit yourselves to the headship of a husband who's not being godly, that you won't suffer for it? No, he's not promising that. What He is promising is that what you do will be delightful to Him. And He's promising that He, that, that he is the God who uses that kind of faithfulness to change the hearts of other people perhaps to change the heart of your husband. I've seen it happen numerous times where one person in marriage started to do this stuff and God worked powerfully in the heart of the other person. doesn't always work out that way, but it does happen. It's the kind of thing that God does. In fact, throughout the Scriptures, God tells us that He has this very strategic purpose for our obedience. And our obedience is not merely, it is, it is most certainly to cultivate and, and to, you know, bless our relationship with Him. But it's not just that. It's never just that. God is always using the obedience of His children to show Christ off and to, to draw others in and to build up His body. Okay. So who does the winning? Well, Ephesians Ephesians 5, Christ Himself is the head of the body and Christ Himself is the Savior of the body. A few verses later when He starts talking to men, we'll get to it next week, He says that Jesus laid down His life and loved the church so that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory. Not so that that the husband will present the church to Him. So that He might... Present to himself the church in all his glory. See, we guys, we are just instruments. If you want to get in trouble with the culture, uh just say what God says about the godly submission of a wife in a marriage. That will that will bring down the the wrath of this culture on you. But more and more in our generation. Brothers and sisters, some of the worst resistance that you will get to saying what God says about the wife's role of submission in the marriage will be from other Christians, at least from other professing Christians. But this is very uncompromising language. And the in everything part means what it says. Now, uh, let me clarify something, lest you walk away thinking that I'm a monster. I very firmly, very strongly believe that if a woman is in the same space, in the same house as a violent husband, she needs to be removed from that space. Okay, And the body of Christ needs to needs to make sure that they provide that refuge in that place. And that's happened before in this church. But that is not the same as saying to that wife that her accountability to God to lay down her life... To submit to her husband has ended because he's such, he is such a monster. And that's way too often where we go. In fact, a very, a very overwhelming measure of what is presently called Christian marriage counseling is all about helping women draw the right boundaries. So that they know exactly how far things can go before they get to bail. And they're all about telling their husbands in the counseling sessions that they have worked it all out and now, now we're gonna be in agreement about just how much you can take advantage of me and just how much you can speak badly to me and just how much you can disrespect me before I get to bail. Guys, where would you and I be if Jesus did that? Where would you and I be if any minute of any day Jesus said, I'm going to put some boundaries on just how much you can sin against me? See, Jesus, when he went to the cross, he knew our sin, past, present, and future before he ever, before he ever let those nails be driven into his hands and his feet. And he went to the cross knowing all that and he didn't draw boundaries. On his submission to his father and actually on his subordination of his own well-being for the sake of our well-being. And he's our example. And so if we're going to be called, if we're going to call ourselves Christian marriage counselors, shouldn't we be telling people to do what Christ did for us? That's what, that's what the Bible keeps telling us. I want to talk for a minute about how to fumble the handoff and how to nail the handoff for wives. The first thing that wives, and this is a partial list, there are a lot of ways to do this, but one of the first things that happens in in many relationships is that wives determine to control their own well-being. And and that is always a grievous, grievous mistake. It makes a train wreck of the marriage. And uh, the the big problem is if they're trying to control their own well-being, That leads to, it leads to the notion that they're, that they do have control or that their husband has control over their well-being. When the reality is that only God has control over their well-being. Go back sometime to Jeremiah 10 and look at what it says about why God is to be feared. It's because He's the one who does either harm or good. And in scripture, you know what? There's no one else in that category. There are people that we perceive are threats to us. There are situations that we perceive are threats to us. But because there's a God who controls those people and those situations in totality, there's really only one who controls harm and good, curse and blessing, and that's God. And so when we ascribe the power to bless us, when we ascribe that to someone else or to ourselves, we're pushing God out of His seat and, and guys, God is not going to give up His seat to you or me or any anyone else. And that's really, really good because God loves... If you're His child, He loves you too much to let you become the source of your own well-being. Or to let your husband... Or your wife become the source of your well-being. And the reason that he won't let that happen is because he intends to be the only source of your well-being. And so he's going to frustrate that effort and you're going to fail to find any kind of fulfillment, any kind of satisfaction in that, in that arrangement of things. You're fighting the unchangeable God and you're going to lose. And that's really, really good. Another thing that uh, is often done to fumble the handoff, and that's to, to give your husband ownership of your well-being. And that really goes into what we have just talked about. Only God gets that gets that seat. And then here's a really, really, this is a really big one. Uh, Debbie and I, in, in doing uh, counseling with hurting couples, run into this one uh, a lot. Wives, when you make it your assignment to get your husband to do his assignment, That is a train wreck. It's guaranteed to fail. You know why? Because you're not sovereign over anybody else's heart. Where I've failed this one badly is with my children, especially since they've become adults. I act way too often as if somehow I have control, I have sovereignty over their hearts, and I don't. And so God, you know what God does with that? He frustrates that because he loves me too much To let me think that I can take his seat. And wives, he loves you too much to give you control over your husband's spiritual well-being, over his godliness. It's never gonna happen. So when you buy those Christian books and put them on the end table by his recliner, when you, you know, when you send him those links to those great Christian articles, especially the ones that have to do with the stuff he's really getting wrong. God is at work to see to it that you fail. And way too often we don't think in those terms. We think, oh, if I just get the mix right, then things will start working really well in my marriage. And the whole time you're fighting against the only one who can make a marriage show Christ off well. So you need to give it up. And I already talked about this one, but a great way to fumble the handoff is to worry about drawing good boundaries. Just be thankful that Jesus never did that with you. Okay. And then, finally, treat the spirit working through the word as insufficient or irrelevant. That'll do it every time. People who do much, much admonition with hurting couples, um, they know exactly what this what I'm talking about here. This happens when, when a, a wife looks at these instructions and says, you know, "They're great in theory, but they don't—they don't work. They don't apply to me. If God only knew what I'm dealing with, He'd change this up. Or at least, at least He would give me some scenarios. Right? He wouldn't leave me with a bunch of principles." Guys, do you know why Paul didn't populate the book of Ephesians with several thousand scenarios? It's because wisdom always trumps knowledge. Wisdom is the moral skill to live in keeping with God's character when you don't have a checklist. And our problem is we like checklists. And so we... (laughs) We bail out on the Word of God and we say this isn't sufficient. It's not good enough. The Spirit working through the Word is not going to get us where we need to be. And what God says to you and to me is, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. The very foundation of sin in the garden started when men saw God's Word as illegitimate and insufficient and they replaced it with their own. And so we don't get to do that. When we get to the, how to make the handoff, how to nail the handoff, we'll, uh, we'll talk about that right now. Here's how to nail the handoff for wives. Same thing applies to husbands. And guys, if you're not married, if you're widowed, if you're divorced, if you're in the earlier part of life, or if you simply, if God has not seen to it that you would have a husband or a wife, this, this applies to you a hundred percent. Here's how you nail the handoff to put the hands of others into the hands of your Savior every day. You do all of Ephesians chapters 4 and 5 with all of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 as your supply line. And if you say, well, that's really daunting, let me simplify it for you. Because here's the short version. Be an outrageously wealthy servant. Ephesians 1-3 through is just a mountain of promises that God has made to every child whom He has redeemed. Everyone He has brought into union with Christ. It is a litany of the unfathomable riches of Christ that belongs to every single Christian now and forever. And nobody can take any of this away from you. Christians spend a lot of their time Holding God to promises He never made while they're ignoring the ones that He did make. Come to Ephesians 1-3 through on a regular basis and get so familiar with it that you're never out of things to have in your mind that God has actually promised. Guys, it will change your life. I didn't start burning this stuff into my mind after I went to seminary. I started when I was 16 years old because these promises became... The definition of well-being to me. I've been so juiced up to get to the book of Ephesians because, guys, God changed my life through the promises in this book. Some of you know my history. You know what I was like when I was a teenage boy. The depression, the anxiety, the dependence on medications. I'm not condemning anybody's treatments. Therapy, please. But God freed me from those things. He freed me from that, from a life of despair when He saved me and He showed me these promises. And they became the definition to me of well-being and they've been my definition of well-being ever since. And I keep going back to them all the time, day after day. I don't think there is a single day that I live that I don't go back to the promises in my mind and my heart. The promises in Ephesians 1 through 3. To know that I have been blessed, that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. To know the hope of His calling, the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. To comprehend together with all the saints what is the length and breadth and height and depth and to know the love of God which surpasses knowing. To be convinced that He is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. That's well-being. And guys, nobody can take that away from you. And when you live out the exhortations in Ephesians 4 through 6, with that as your supply line, you know what happens? The Christian life ceases to be a burden and it becomes a marvelous delight. It becomes a joy to do the things of the Lord. When I hear Christians talk about the Christian life as burdensome, I can't even relate to that anymore. It's not because I'm anything special. It's because the God that I trust is special. His promises are insanely great. And that's what God intends for us. Wives, you have a tough assignment because you're married to a sinner. He doesn't have to submit to you to obey God, but you have to submit to Him. And that's that seems horribly unfair. But that's a beautiful assignment that God gave you to be as Christ in that relationship. Just as we are called to be as Christ in that very same way in every relationship that we have in the body of Christ. It's a beautiful, powerfully useful assignment. And God wants us to be excited about it. He wants us to wake up in the morning knowing that what He has called us to do, what He has commissioned us to do based on our calling, He has equipped us to do Beyond measure. We just have to believe him. We have to trust him and we have to act on these things. Be an outrageously wealthy servant. Uh, just two other very quick things, and then I'm done. One is the ramifications for dating. My brother Jim made me think, he help me think about this a little bit. <laughs> if you're dating, I have a little, just a very simple tip for you. You can take it or leave it. First, be an outrageously wealthy servant of others, and then find an outrageously wealthy servant of others. And don't get married until or unless you find one of those who wants to marry you. And when you do, you should probably look really hard at that. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And then... Lastly, the implications of all this for singles. I don't want to, it's so, when we get into these passages about wives and husbands, it's so easy for some of us to just clock out. This absolutely applies to you. Because this all traces back, it all goes back to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It's about imitating Christ, it's about laying your life down in order to love those who are loved by God. We all get to do that. And God gives us all these marvelous relationships in the body. One of the reasons that a lot of Christians who aren't married don't understand how this applies is because they're in the body, but they're not really in the body. They're not in the trenches in doing life with other members of the body of Christ. And when they, when they start doing that, they see exactly how this works. All right, I've gone too long and I apologize for that, but I get excited about this stuff. I, I pray with all my heart that we don't just walk away today and say what's next. That, that we really take this seriously. Father, thank You. Thank You for the transforming power of Your Word. Father, make us humble servants of the living God. Make us great representatives of Jesus Christ entirely by His power and entirely enabled by all that You have lavished upon us through our union with Him. We ask it in His precious name. Amen.